everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bayou Chronicles. I'm your host, Crystal, and this week I am joined by a dear friend and co-worker, Morgan. She is a Bayou Chronicles listener, so I figured it would be pretty cool to have her on the show. Um, I guess this could be called a fan-hosted show, if you will. But Morgan, tell everyone a little bit about you. Hey guys, so my name is Morgan, obviously. Um, I do work with Crystal. Um, I attend LSUS University. I am a education student. Um, I do history as a concentration. So naturally, true crime is very interesting to me. Anything that has happened, anything that has history in the case, I love it. So I'm really excited to be joining this podcast, even though I will not be as good as Bethany. I don't think anybody could live up to her, but I'm very excited to be able to step in for just a day. Aw, Bethany's going to think that's a compliment, and I love it, and she deserves that compliment. Because I, I mean, I agree. No one, no one's as good as Bethany. But I enjoy having, doing this with like you and Tyler and Ashley. Like, it's fun. I like it. I know, Tyler's been cracking me up these past few weeks. That's what everyone keeps saying. Everybody's like, he's so funny. And I was like, well, I'm glad y'all think so because it's annoying for me sometimes. But now it's all good. (laughs) Well, we have been pretty quiet on social media lately. But definitely give us a follow if you don't already. Running a podcast solo is hard work. I mean, I kind of do like 12 different things. Uh, one of our other listeners and co-workers, Freddie, made that comment the other day. I kind of screwed something up and didn't tell her about something on the schedule. And she's like, it's okay. She's like, you have like 12 different things going on in your life. And I'm like, yeah, basically. I was like, I'm never not doing anything. Um, But I know that once Bethany is back in the game, everything will slowly start running smoothly. Um, If you haven't already, I did put a countdown on Instagram. I'll probably repost it again, but basically I named it, you probably know what this means. And it is a countdown until Bethany's return. So... I'm not going to tell you when that is. You just kind of have to go look on Instagram if you want to know. Until then, you guys have to deal with my noisy recording area. Um, I hope, hopefully it just kind of adds to the ambiance of the podcast. But our little recording studio in Bethany's house is much more appropriate for recording a podcast. Um, My house definitely is not. There's always people loud and dogs loud and cars loud so it's horrible but anyway today I do want to talk about a case that really brings home the danger of I guess let's call it social media um it's in a different way than we previously kind of talked about social media being dangerous we discussed the Justin Bloxham case, um, and that's actually a case that is from where Morgan's from, and we had a weird moment one day at work when, what was it, the sister-in-law? Yes, it was a sister-in-law of somebody who was related to him. Came in literally, Crazy. like, right when we were talking about this, and me, neither one of us were sure if, you know, we should say anything, so we chose not to, um, but... In that case, we kind of talked about adults pretending to be children to lure other children out of their homes. Um, 
In today's episode, we're really going to be talking about two women who sought out to make their lives seem perfect, perfect online. Um, I know as adults, I know I suffer with comparison. It's really bad when you see people online live these perfect lives and you're like, well, why isn't my life that perfect? And I have to remind myself that no one is as happy as they look online. It, I, I don't know. I, I think it's something that has become more prevalent because of social media. But what's truly scary about this story, which Morgan knows nothing about. I've only told her like the basics. But what's truly scary about this story is that behind that perfection, it wasn't just an unhappy life or, you know, fake pictures. What was shown online was the exact opposite of what was happening behind the scenes. Behind the scenes was a story full of abuse and neglect. Our story starts in a small town, South Dakota. This is where Jennifer Hart and Sarah Gingler would grow up just a few hours away from each other. Jennifer grew up kind of like in central South Dakota, and then Sarah grew up mm, northeast corner of the state. It wouldn't be until 1999 that the two of them would actually meet at Northern State University. They were both elementary education majors. Sarah ended up graduating with her degree in elementary education with a focus on special education, but Sarah would never finish her degree. When they decided to come out as a couple, Sarah and Jen were suffering from some remarks made by homophobic people in the area. They kind of described it as being harassed, which I fully believe would be the case considering that this is this part of the country, the Midwest, in the early 2000s, they were not nearly as accommodating to people that they consider different. They did decide to get out of the area and move to where they thought they might be a little bit more accepted. So they settled in Alexandria, Minnesota for a while, then Oregon, and finally Washington. In 2009, They traveled to Connecticut and got married. And in 2018, Jen drove herself, Sarah, and their six adopted children off a cliff in California. So I'm pretty sure, Morgan, I'm pretty sure you're wondering how we went from small town girls to parents to murder. Yeah, like, okay. (laughs) Well, I'm going to try and tell you in less than an hour. Um, Most people that cover this, that cover it in an hour, they kind of gloss over a lot. People who do try to cover it in depth, it usually takes a couple episodes. And in fact, there's a whole podcast that's like nine episodes about it. But hold on. This is a deep one. I'm going to try to give as much information as possible. Um, so just hold on to your seats. Maybe you have listened to a couple of podcasts about this family before. There are quite a few out there, but maybe you're like me and love true crime, but never even heard about this case until someone else told you. 
In my case, Stephanie, my best friend, texted me about this and asked if I knew about it. And I immediately went down the darkest rabbit hole. And the more I learned about this family, the more I realized what a problem social media has become. All too often, we see our friends going on vacation, having a baby, buying a car, and we get so envious of like, why is that their time in their life to have this happen? And why is it not my turn? We see the highlights and we associate those highlights with perfection. We don't see the panic attacks, the arguments, the loneliness that comes with it. We just see the highlights that people choose to show us. In the case of Jen and Sarah Hart, the world saw perfection, but behind that Facebook page was six children who suffered years of of abuse, mostly at the hands of Jen, but Sarah knew. I'm going to say this first. I'm going to get this out of the way. Sarah knew. And silence is compliance, in my opinion. Very much so. Like, if you if you know what is going on, that is, that is 100% abuse. You are letting that happen. While living in Alexandria, the two women worked at a local department store together. They decided that they wanted to try and foster a child as a means of hopefully adopting one day. Basically, what some people did in order to get a better chance at adopting a child, what they'll do is they'll foster for a little bit just so that they look more appealing and they have more experience with foster children. So that's what they were doing. In 2004, a 15-year-old girl who only wished to be referred to as Lee, which is just a version of her middle name, was placed with Sarah and Jen. Lee mentioned in a story with the Seattle Times that the women would take her out camping into various activities that she had never done. And it was really exciting to her to have like this kind of crappy background and then all of a sudden have these two people who would want to take her out to do cool things. Over the year and a half that Lee stayed with the women, they kept trying to take her to the department store that they worked at for makeovers. And it was something that Lee told the Times that she did not want to do considering she was such a tomboy. Which I totally understand because I was kind of that way when I was 15. Like, I wasn't, like, I didn't want to make over. Like, that was annoying. I just wanted to be me. So, my thing that I, like, all of a sudden, like, right right off the bat is you would think that these two women who have had to go through something that they got judged for would understand to let her be her own person and to not judge her for who she wants to be, but they more worry about perfection, how she's going to look on her camera. But, I agreed. Yeah. Agreed. I 100% agree with that. Lee even mentioned that they would get very angry with her when she didn't want to kind of participate in these makeovers. And it was like kind of a situation where they were taking time out of their day to do this for her. So she needed to do it. 
And Lee also mentioned that Sarah was normally the quiet and kind one in the relationship, but that Jen was the very temperamental, high-strung, and just the one that one person that was just a lot. And she actually remembered a particular moment when the three of them went to a Packers game with footballs that they hoped that Amon Green would sign. And apparently, Jen was a huge football fan and a huge Packers fan. And so when they went there, they all had footballs that they were hoping that he would sign. But when Green only signed Lee's ball and didn't sign any, either one of Jen or Sarah's, Jen was so upset with Lee that she didn't speak to her for days. So a grown woman in her mid-twenties was pissed that a football player signed a 15-year-old girl's football and not her own. That's childish to me. Either way, Lee knew that Sarah and Jen wanted to adopt more kids. Like, it was something that she would, they were open with, or open to her with. And they told her that they were planning on adopting three siblings, and she was super excited to be an older sister. And she told her therapist that she was excited to be an older sister. However, shortly before the kids were supposed to arrive from Texas, Lee was dropped off at her therapy appointment, and her therapist broke it to her that she would no longer be living with Sarah and Jen, and she never saw them again. It like, I'm talking they, while she was in her therapy appointment, they took all of her things from her from the house, packed it up, took it over to her next foster parents, and washed their hands of her that fast. Just overnight. So, was this because of the football thing, or? From what I could tell, it was just that they did not want her. They just wanted these three kids that they were adopting. Okay, well, that is already just not good for a child's mentality. No, it's... At all. It's wrong. It's just, it's gross. So, they had already adopted her. Were they fostering They her? were still fostering her. Okay. They had not legally adopted her yet. Okay. Um, she did, with the help of her next foster parents, who were um, youth pastors at a local Christian church... She was able to go to school, and they helped her learn. She said that they helped her learn how to forgive Sarah and Jen for how they treated her so that she could move on with her life, which I thought was an incredible statement for her to make that, you know, because it is true. She learned how to forgive. Like, that's where forgiveness comes from is from. Yeah, that and that is a very hard thing to do, especially when you have, when you're being treated the way that she was being treated. That is tremendously huge for her to be able to do. Now, I will say, she even said herself that even considering what she went through, she never expected them to do what they did because she never thought they, it was going to, she never experienced any kind of gross mistreatment the way that these kids did. Um, So, it was kind of hard for her to believe at first. Also, Sarah and Jennifer would go on to adopt their first set of siblings. They adopted 8-year-old Marcus, 4-year-old Hannah, and 3-year-old Abigail. They all would seem 
well if you were on the outside looking in. Like, everything looked perfect. Jen was posting several things to social media about the kids, things that they were doing on the weekends. All, they just looked like the happiest family. These two beautiful women adopted three beautiful children, and they were living the perfect life. Like, just perfect. In 2008, a few years after the adoptions, they were adopted officially in 2006. So in 2008, a few years after their adoption, Hannah, the who well, she was four, so she had been six now, began to tell teachers and nurses at school that she had owies, and they began to see visible bruises on her arms. And that's when the teachers realized that something was wrong. By this point, Sarah and Jen had had also had three more siblings placed with them. Six-year-old Devante, four-year-old Jeremiah, and three-year-old Sierra. As a result of the school finding out about this form of abuse that was happening, because I don't know what exactly was happening, but whatever was, whatever was causing these bruises... Sarah and Jen decided to pull the kids out of school until the following school year. So they pulled them out and just kept them out until, I guess it would have been the year of 2009, that August, September when school started. That's finally when they re-enrolled them in school. So do we know how far the school took it upon themselves to check in on what they were seeing on Hannah? In in this situation, they reported it. There was an investigation. They said that she fell down the stairs or something. I believe this was the situation where she fell down the stairs and that was it. That was it. She fell down the stairs and they dropped it. The, the investigation was dropped after that. Wow. Now, I do feel like it is important at this point to note that Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra were not just three kids who had been stuck in foster care. They were very much wanted and cared for. Their mother had a substance abuse problem, so an aunt of theirs had take, started taking care of them and their older brother. She, at one point, allowed their mother to babysit one day and apparently that was against the rules of her having them in her custody and so the children were removed from her care and they were never given back this aunt filed several motions for a new trial literally was begging courts to let these kids stay with her and they were never successful so they took the kids away from her care terminated parental rights and it was able that was that meant the Hart family was able to adopt through the three younger siblings. They the Hart family did not well Jen and Sarah did not want to adopt the older sibling to these three kids because he had quote unquote behavior issues. So you really want I, it just doesn't make sense to me that they're so intent on keeping a family together by adopting these three kids yet they won't adopt one because it has behavior issues it all has to do with that perfect picture and that's what i think it is too It, it that was not part of the perfect picture well let's fast forward to 2010 while at a new school 
a now six-year-old Abigail has bruises all over her stomach. And I'm telling you from like the top of her sternum down is bruised. When asked what happened, she tells teachers point blank that it was Jen who hit her with a closed fist, like punched her in the stomach. That she held her head under water and that she was being deprived of food. This obviously needed to be reported, and it was. However, Sarah took the blame, saying that she got carried away with, this, with the punishment. As a result, she pled guilty to assault charges. So, basically, Jen hit her. Sarah took the blame, and she was, she was felt guilty for it. I personally think I couldn't find anything but I don't know for sure that Sarah had adopted the children or if it was just Jen who adopted the children or how that works that was uh, that was like about what, what I was about to ask was why did she take the blame what was the benefit of Sarah taking the blame and that's of Jen? the only thing that I could think of was that maybe Jen had majority custody of the kids and it would look it would look worse if she got the charge for it like the kids would have got taken away or something but my thing is is sarah and jen like they they're married they are a couple yes why did the court let these kids stay in a home where a wife let her wife meet on her on the on their child that they adopted like that's a great question anyone in the audience know (laughs) um i personally i don't love giving my personal opinions on cases a lot of times but in this situation i am under the belief that jen was incredibly narcissistic and that part of her abuse extended to Sarah, mm-hmm. and that she was alienating Sarah away from family because they didn't talk to their family, and that she was a- and there was nothing wrong with their family. Their families even say that there was no bad blood between them. They had just pulled themselves away. I think that she was alienating her away, and that's why she stayed. Like, she had some kind of narcissistic abusive control over Sarah as well. And I'm not saying that through all of this that Sarah is innocent because, like I said, silence is compliance. But I do think part of it is that she had a strong hold on her. Plain and simple. But it does get worse. The following school year, at this point, nine-year-old Hannah, so the same one who had bruises on her arms a couple years before, she started reporting to the school that she was hungry. And this is pretty normal. I think me and you, was it me and you that talked about teachers at school that would have food for students who would need some? Yes, I I had an education instructor. He told us about how he had students that he knew were um, not in the best living situations or their family could not afford food and he kept food in his utility closet and would give it to them 
after class so other students wouldn't realize what was going on. And I felt like that was incredible of him. Oh, yeah. That's that's powerful, too, that he even has the mindset to think about the fact that maybe I should wait until after class yes. is out to let them, to yes. give it to them. That way they don't embarrass the students. Well, at this point, where, well, while we're at, Hannah had, I believe it was a school nurse that she had told. And they called Jen to let her know that, you know, what she was, what was happening. And Jen came up there in a hurry and was walked in all angry and mad. And they reported that she did just brought up a banana and nuts to give to Hannah and just shoved it into her mouth, like literally shoved it into her mouth and gave her food. When this whole situation of Hannah not having enough food was brought to Sarah's attention, she on the other hand remarked that Hannah was just using the quote-unquote food card and that she should just be given water next time she complains about being hungry. (sighs) So, obviously, if you're a parent out there, I'm pretty sure that makes you angry. And I'm not even a parent, and it makes me angry. Yeah, very much so. Like, I I don't even know what to say. Like, that is, that is, okay. <laughs> like, she's hungry. You're, okay, whatever. I don't, like, most nine-year-olds, they... When they're hungry, they're hungry. Yeah. They know, they can vocalize that they're hungry. Yeah. But it wouldn't be long, though, that this family would just pack up and move to Oregon. And I think that this had a lot to do with it, is that people were catching on a little bit more to the fact that something was going on. Um, Part of it, too, was that people and teachers at the school stopped calling Jen and Sarah when Hannah would mention that she was hungry because they were afraid that it would just get the children in trouble. So, they just stopped reporting it. I can see where not calling the parents is where they go to because, one, that can make it worse. Yes. Um, but for the, the, I feel like they should still be doing more. Like, I do, too. Stop ignoring I feel it. like there's something else that could be done. Yeah. Um, when the family moved to Oregon, this time they wouldn't be enrolling the kids in school. Instead, Jen would be homeschooling them while Sarah worked. And it would be during this time as a stay-at-home mother that Jen's attempt to portray the family as perfect would start to go full force. And honestly, I feel like she made it her full-time job in trying to make this family look perfect. When they did move to Oregon, anonymous, an anonymous person reported the history of abuse that had happened in Minnesota to the Oregon Department of Human Services. So, there, you know, there was somebody who was like, look, they're trying to get away. We have to let somebody know. And in 2013, the Oregon Department of Human Services did start a, an investigation And the investigation basically had the report of abuse that said that the children appeared to not be fed and that they were being neglected. Because all six children were from the state of Texas, which is where they were all adopted from, was Texas, they received a stipend of about $2,000 a month for the kids. So every 
month, the state of Texas would send them this adoption assistance check, basically, to help support the kids. Was this for each, like $2,000 for each kid? Or? No, it was $2,000 for all of them combined. Okay, but that, that is still, That's still a lot to get of money. them food and not have starving children who are begging for food at school. Exactly. I mean, even, and I even kind of did the math out. You know, if only Sarah was working, Jen was not only Sarah, and she happened to be a manager at a Kohl's. So, I said she worked full-time, it's in Oregon, cost of living's a little bit higher, but they also get paid a little bit more, but she's a full-time manager, so, and they even talked about her working tons of overtime, and that sometimes she would work six days a week, so I was like, you know, maybe she brings home, her bring home is twenty-five dollars to $3,000, you know? Add in the two grand that they're getting for the kids every month, that's a pretty nice income. Like, I mean, they're not going to be living in the best house, may not be driving new cars, they may not have the nicest, newest, everything, but you could not convince me that that wasn't a living wage. Yeah, and, I mean, it, that doesn't even matter, living that lavish lifestyle, especially when you've chosen to adopt and care for these kids, so those should, those kids should be your priority, mm -hmm. not anything else, and $2,000 a month for kids plus the money you make at your job, I mean, you gotta think about it, getting like snacks and like Lunchables and all these kind of things just for them to eat on um, and just, and then dinner that you can make, that's not gonna really add up to $2,000 in one trip. Oh, not at all. No. Like, if they were trying to, not, and I'm not trying to put them on a budget, obviously I can't do that now, but for eight people, you could completely realistically feed every single person in that house for less than a thousand dollars a month yeah 100 percent. i can see where where you can relate to that more because you you have a lot of people in your house right now so you have to you kind of have to know a little bit about how much it is to be able to provide groceries oh 100 percent. um it is concerning, though, that a co-worker at Kohl's at one point did mention that Sarah made the kind of offhand comment while talking about the kids that she had wished that someone would have told her that she didn't have to have a big family. And that comment to me kind of spoke that they regretted how many kids that they chose to adopt, that they thought that they had to adopt all these kids because that was the thing that they were supposed to do. That as this couple who was adopting, who wanted to keep kids together, that they wanted to have a big family. And now that they had the big family and they saw how much work it took and how much money it took, they didn't want to do that anymore. And... I, I think that's that's fair. That's a fair thing for someone to think that, hey, this was way more than I bargained for. But you don't get into a situation like that without fully knowing what's happening. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I don't I don't know much about adoption or any of that. But my question is is do they get more money a month for more, the more kids that they have? No, they basically got a set amount of money for each kid. 
Okay. So they got like three fifty to five hundred or whatever per kid. Okay. Um, as part of the investigation in Oregon, several disturbing things did come to life. One friend of the family spoke that the kids were not allowed to speak without raising their hands in the house, and they couldn't even do simple things like wish each other happy birthday, which is a direct contradiction to a post on Facebook from Jen that states that the family celebrates every occasion from the day that they were adopted to birthdays to pets birthdays just everything so it's a little weird Uh, another friend spoke of a time when the family ordered pizza but that each kid was only allowed one piece just just one piece of pizza And the next morning, the leftover pizza was gone. And Jen got very angry and started demanding to know who ate the rest of the pizza. When nobody would admit to who ate the pizza, their punishment was to lie in their bed for five hours. Now, now, as an adult, if someone said you had to lie in bed for five hours, great. I would take the nap of all naps. Every single time. <laughs> but as a kid, that, that is a punishment, you know? However, it is important to remember that at this time, when this happened, their oldest kid, her oldest son, would have been about 14 years old. It would have been Marcus. So, despite this and other reports from the Minnesota anonymous person, nothing ever happened. This family looked quote unquote too normal for they not don't include the two part in the quote but quote normal for this to be abuse. Meaning it was documented several times that the family no further investigation needed to happen because the family looked normal. And to me that's dangerous. When you look at a family and something and everything looks normal, like, families aren't normal, though. No. And social media and what you see on there is not everything, especially nowadays. And when you see people out in public, no, that is not the same as when they're at home. Oh, 100%. And I think if someone did a CPS check-in of somebody and they said everything looked normal, I would be worried. Like, I would expect the house to be a little dirty and lived in, or, you know, there to be old food in the refrigerator. There should be food, but, of course, who doesn't leave something in a Tupperware container for a couple days too long? Yes, especially with six kids. Exactly. 14 and younger, definitely. That house should be, like, a mess. Exactly. If it wasn't a mess, I would be concerned. I'd be like, ma'am, are you spending enough time with your kids? Like... What's going on? During this time in Oregon, Jen and Sarah really got, like, super big into the festival scene. They would travel during the week and on weekends to shows and festivals all around the country. They actually, the you know, the family itself actually became pretty popular in this scene, and they started to be referred to as the Heart Tribe. So, suddenly, Jen's social media page was blowing up with new followers. Pictures of her and the kids with musicians and, and artists at the shows. There were pictures of Devontae with free, neck, uh, free hugs sign around his neck. 
it was something that the family was known for. They were known for this as being this big family whose kids were very free-spirited and fun and intellectual and just giving and kind. And, you know, it was something that... It was a way for them to portray that social media perfection. It was a way for them to portray that in real life. And people did wonder why these kids weren't at school, but they were homeschooling. And all of these festivals and outside shows and all these yoga retreats and stuff that they would take the kids on, they considered that to be their homeschooling. And I know I'm not one to talk because I technically was homeschooled. Not technically. I was homeschooled. And my brother that I have guardianship over, he is homeschooled. But there's a difference between taking your kid to a festival scene and actually homeschooling your kid. Huge difference. If you're going to commit to homeschooling your kid you have to give them an education like that's the whole part that's the whole purpose so I guess it really wasn't that big of a deal to people because people mentioned it when I was reading through like people's comments and stuff that knew them but I don't know for me that really stuck out perhaps the most famous picture of them all that really got the family Elevated not just in this festival yoga scene, but into popular mainstream media, is a famous picture of Devante hugging a white cop at a Black Lives Matter rally. You may have seen it. I should have sent it to you. Um, if you had seen it, if you looked at it, you probably would know what picture it is. Um, the picture is viral. He is wearing a, Devontae's wearing a fedora and he's crying and he is hugging a cop. Yeah, I feel like I have seen it. I just, it's been a long time. Yeah. I'll have to like look it up after we finish this. The, this picture was shared thousands of times all over social media. And by this point, most of the people on Jen's social media were people that she had met on on social media or at these festivals but after this picture went viral she had so many followers that were just people who wanted to follow along with their lives and you cannot tell me that this didn't make her feel better or feel good about herself um while all these people that she met on the road or at these festivals would comment about how well behaved and kind these children were other people who would speak out later after the tragedy happened made mention that they felt weird at the time about the whole situation but didn't really know how to put their finger on it. That a lot of the times it felt as if the kids were like little soldiers and would turn on for pictures when it was time to be taking when it was time to be in the spotlight but the second that the cameras were put away or anything like that they would immediately revert to like this sheltered kind of they would kind of revert to kind of 
pulling inside of themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, like shutting down. They would shut down, yeah. yeah. This is when the TV station started reaching out to interview Devontae. And Jen initially said no over and over, stating that she wanted to protect the privacy of her family. This seems normal enough. I mean, I think a lot of parents in the situation would do the same thing. Say, hey, you know, that's great. I love that you saw this picture of my son, but I'd prefer not to. Looking back, some people can't help but think that perhaps that this was just another abusive way that Jen was able to silence the voices of the children. And in this case, Devontae, who could be argued as their favorite and least favorite. Um, Devontae was a bright kid. He was a kind, loving, never met a stranger, always wanted to take care of people kind of kid. But this is what Jen told us about Devante. This is not what we know about Devante from anything else. The only things that we know about him really is what Jen says. No one knows what these kids liked, what their interests were, who was funniest, who was the nerdiest. No one knows any of that. We just know what Jen told us. And Jen at one point mentioned that she felt closer to Devante than she had any other human on this planet. That they, she felt like they were connected at their souls. Just weird. But okay. It's weird. Just a little weird. Um, so I think that is really important too to know that every picture that we see of them and every picture that I post on Instagram or in Facebook, or wherever you see this, I think it's important to note that when you're looking at it, I need you to think about everything that was happening to these children at home. And once you hear all of that, and you, like, or you know that, you cannot look at the pictures the same. You see straight through their smiles. I'm going to move on now, because I will get onto a tangent with that. Yeah, I was just I was just staring at the pictures as we were talking as you were talking about the festivals, and I was just trying. I was zooming in on each each one of them, and I was just like, how how long did they practice this before they went out in public? Because there's no way they are that good at being able to hide that yeah abuse. <sighs> it's a rough one. I told everybody it's going to be a rough one, so. We're going to move on. In early 2017, the family ended up moving to rural Washington. I can't say that. Rural Washington. (laughs) At this point, I'm going to tell you these kids' ages because I think it's incredibly important for us to remember this. So this is 2017. At this point, Marcus would have been 19 years old. Hannah and Devontae are 15. Abigail is 14, Jeremiah 13, and Sierra would be the youngest at 12. These were not the little kids that they adopted 11 years ago. 11 years ago. These were teenagers. They had six teenagers. I'm sorry, I'm including a 12-year-old as a teenager. <laughs> the summer after they moved to Washington, the next-door neighbors of the Hearts, uh, Bruce and, D- and Bruce and Dana DeCobb, woke up to Hannah beating on the door for help. 
When Bruce opened the door, Hannah rushed in saying that Sarah and Jen are racist, that they abused them, and she begged the DeCobbs not to make her go back and to not let them know that she was there. So, obviously, I would be a little freaked out if a kid rushed into my house who was 15 years old telling me that her parents were racist and that they are abusing her. Like, that's a little freaky. Soon after, Jen let herself into the house. And by I let herself in the house, I legitimately mean she let herself in the house. Bruce commented that he opened the door and Jen just walked in. And went and found Hannah and escorted her back to the house. Dana recalls the next morning the kids came over and explained that they were in fact drug babies. And that's why they act the way that they do. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, did, did the neighbors not like report, the, to the, report it to the police? That they just had a, a well, neighbor child run into their house? In the middle of the night? Well, at first they decided, Bruce was kind of like, let's just stay out of it. Let's not, let's not get too involved. Thought it was maybe just a one type kind of thing. There should never, like, if, is there, if there's one time, like, that, it, there shouldn't not, be a yeah. one time, but if there is, that should be the only time. Yes. It is, when a child comes to you, it is now your responsibility to help save that child to the best ability as you can. Yes, I agree. And Dana actually told her father what happened, and he could not bear to keep that on his conscience, that he knew this information. So it was actually him who who called the police and let them know what was going on, and that he was afraid that something was going on. And so he did initially make a report to the police about what happened. Authorities were alerted. And, uh, but nothing ever really happened. Uh, I know in an interview that I listened to with, um, an investigator, he said that everything checked out and that they were again normal and it just seemed like a one-off kind of thing, which doesn't make sense to me and makes me wonder why no one ever thought to think, oh, They've been reported to CPS how many times? They've had all these issues how many times? Maybe we should take this situation a little bit more serious. Um, yeah, like, I mean, you've got the schools saying things. They're moving, like, all the time. They, all of a sudden, after all of these schools reporting, they just drag them out and do homeschooling? How is that not suspicious? Oh, to me, it's incredibly suspicious. I, I don't know how nobody is doing more investigations. Like, there's, there's I, just no way. As I did research, apparently abusive parents pulling their kids out to homeschool them is incredibly common. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. And that breaks my heart. Because when they pulled them out of school in Oregon, they didn't even, and moved to Oregon, they didn't even register their kids with the state that they were homeschooling. Like, for instance, with Canon, we have to, every year, have to send in our curriculum that we do or a letter from a teacher saying that he's up to date or whatever it is. There's, like, things that you have to do to show that you educated that student over the year to yeah. the level that they would have received in public school. Yeah. They, they, they did not do any of that. They did not even register that the kids were there. Yeah. They essentially, Jen and Sarah, they essentially ripped their 
children, their adopted children, away from their only possibility for survival. Because Oh, they just completely ripped them away from society yes. with this hope of alienating them, basically. Yes. Because, I mean, as, as a school, as an educator, you, you're going to be seeing students where school is their second home. Mm-hmm. They go home and they go to school. Yeah, they're awake at school more than they're awake at home. Yes, it is your job to take care of them and make sure they are doing what they should be doing at school, but to also make sure they are cared for while they are in school. And if a student comes to you, and they say that they are not having a good time at home, it is now your responsibility to help them. And oh, yeah. they essentially just took that away from those those kids. That, like, in alienating them, that was that was pretty much their only last, that was their last chance. That I agree. That, I agree. That was it. Now, they did still allow, like, friends that they had met on social media over to the house for a short, short amount of time. I really think once the pizza situation happened, that was pretty much the last time that they allowed people over to their house. Again, trying to alienate the family. And really, I think it was Jen alienating the family. But a huge red flag for several people who knew the family was that the children looked and acted several years younger than they do. So, I want you to grab your phone and look at the second picture that I sent you. The one that says free hugs and says embrace the revolution. That was This one was actually taken at a Bernie Sanders rally. Okay. So, really quick. Um... Zoom in on the girl that is on the far right side wearing the denim jacket. Okay. How old do you think she is? This is Hannah. Just by looking at her, she looks like she's 9 or 10. Okay, this is Hannah, and she was 14. She looks like... She looks like she's 9. Like, she is tiny. She is a, She is tiny. She and is very she, tiny. So, the one in the middle actually holding the free hug sign wearing the fedora, mm-hmm. that is Devante. And he is 14 as well. Does not look 14. No. At all. Um, the one on the far left, that would be Marcus. And he is 18 in this picture. Okay, he looks like he's 15. Yes, right? He, he looks like he's 15, 16. But he's 18 in this picture. Um, The one that's standing, um, the boy that's standing behind the sign, that would be Jeremiah. And then the youngest kid there, which would be Sierra, and she's standing right to the left of Devante. She's 11. So, she, to me, is the only one that looks closest to her age. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Everyone else looks far younger than they actually are. It it looks like like they're dressing them to be like way younger than they are. Oh, a hundred percent. Not how an eighteen year old dresses, especially what was this back in two thousand seventeen? You said, yeah. No, that is not how eighteen year olds dress. And in, in the case of Hannah, that is not how a fourteen fourteen year old, year old yeah, girl no. dresses. No, and. I mean, wow. It's, it's, it's shocking. So, a family friend 
that was at the Sanders rally with the group um, were all sitting on some bleachers and they ran out of seats. And so she offered to let Hannah sit in her lap. And that was when the friend was informed that Hannah was actually 14. And she was shocked considering that she thought the child that she was holding was 8 or 9. So I get it. Looking at these pictures, you don't realize how bad it is until you associate their ages with the pictures that you're seeing. Because if I was to show you this picture and I didn't tell you anything about the ages of these kids, you would assume that nothing was wrong. You would assume that the kid on the far left, Marcus, you would assume that he was 14, maybe 15 years old, and that the rest of the kids were younger. But really and truly, this kid was 18, and the rest, and then the little girl who is 14 years old looks like a preteen. It's shocking. And to me, that this picture is the one that signifies to me the most that it is incredibly obvious that some type of abuse was happening in that home. Yes, like, I mean, one, when you alienate kids from society, they're not gonna, they're not gonna have their own way of dressing, they're not gonna have their own style, so they're going to look just the way their parents want them to look. Exactly. And they're wanting them to look either younger or like a perfect picture, perfect happy family. I, I have no idea, but what Neither it is, it I. is not their age. Neither do I. Well, let's fast forward to March of 2018, shortly before their tragic deaths. Devante came over to Bruce, their next-door neighbor, and asked for some food. He said that he was hungry and begged Bruce not to tell his parents that he asked for food because he was afraid he was going to get in trouble. A few days later, he asked again. And a few days after that, asked again. Finally, he gave the DeKalbs a list of food items, all non-perishable, and asked that they buy that food and then put it in a location by the fence so that his parents couldn't see it, but that he could get to it. By this point, they were extremely concerned about what was going on in the house, and Dana decided it was time to call CPS again and let them know what was happening. Because I can only imagine what was going through their heads. Like, I guess I would think, like, are they having to hide food to get it inside of the house? You know, is he trying to run away? I don't, there could be 15 different things that he could be trying to do. But on March the 23rd, CPS decided to visit the house and they knocked on the door and they received no answer. They knew Jen was there because the car was parked in the driveway and they knew that she was going to be home at ahead of time, but she chose not to answer the door. So they left their card and went on about their day. The what? morning, yes. What? Yes. Yes. The morning of the 24th, Sarah and Jen loaded up the teenagers, and I'm going to refer to them towards the end as teenagers because a lot of news media kept saying children, and yes, they are children, but these children are 12 to 19. They are teenagers. The morning of the 24th, Sarah and Jen load up the teenagers and head to California. Sarah texted into work, 
and said that she was sick and that she was not going to be able to come into work. On the 25th, Sarah is seen on camera buying about $20 in groceries. She bought like some bananas and a few other snack foods. Unbeknownst to the world, Sarah had been Googling some pretty disturbing things. As Jen was driving, Sarah was looking up on Google how much Benadryl can kill a woman her size, how long does it take to die from hypothermia, and she was looking for no-kill dog shelters. Okay, wait a minute. Okay. Yeah. So, the the Benadryl thing and how long it takes to die from hypothermia, but the, the no-kill dog shelters... So apparently, so yeah, so apparently they had their dog with them, I guess, and they were, she was trying to find a place to drop off her dog because they knew what was going to happen, that she, that they were going to kill themselves, and they were trying to find a home for their dog. Okay. So, you know, kill your kids, but not your dog. No, your dog is more important to find a place to drop off, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how trash people think. Uh, CPS decided or tried to visit their home again on the 26th but were met with no answer once again because the family this time was not there. No one had heard from Sarah for the past two days and they were getting starting to get worried. At, the, at this time the a co-worker of Sarah's decided to call the police and ask for a welfare check on the family since they hadn't been heard from. Okay I'm just gonna let everybody know this is when it kind of kind of gets rough so if you don't want to hear this part i'm not gonna be i'm not gonna be mad if you skip ahead as they were in the car each of the teenagers and sarah were given slash took extremely high levels of benadryl in their and into their systems um, I believe, I really didn't think it was important to know the exact part, but if someone wanted to know, I believe Marcus had the equivalent of like 19 Benadryl pills in his system. Oh my gosh. And Sarah had the equivalent of like 40 something. No one was wearing their seatbelt except for Jen. And I can only assume, and investigators can only assume that at this point, Everyone in the vehicle was asleep except for Jen. So Jen started to drink. And people that were close to her reported that Jen never drank alcohol. But in this instance, she drank. Her blood alcohol content was 0.18. So legal limit is 0.08. Hers was 0.18. She drove the family to this cliff that she would eventually drive off of. And according to her SUV's black box, it showed that she stopped several feet away from the cliff facing it and then pressed on the accelerator and did not let off as she sent the car flying off the edge into the water. The speedometer was stuck showing how fast that she was going. And when she drove off of the cliff, the car was going at 90 miles an hour. So the car basically hit the ground going a little, probably a little faster than 90 miles an hour. Okay, so Sarah's the one looking up all this stuff. Sarah's looking this stuff up. Yes, but she's... But Jen is the one who drove. Yes, and Sarah also took the pills. So, like, I'm guessing, did she just not want to be awake? 
I, the I'm guessing. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that Sarah just wanted to be asleep as much as possible for it and wanted the kids to be as asleep as possible for it and that Jen thought she was doing this, what's that movie where they drive off the cliff at the end? The two, Thelma and Louise. She wanted to mm. Thelma and Louise it out of here. That's the only thing that I could think of. I mean, I have no idea. Like, I, I just, it's were a lot they done with it. Like, did they think they had no way out? I mean, but I, nothing justifies it. Like, it's I don't wrong. know. Nothing justifies this no. at all. But when police responded to the crash, they immediately found Jen, Sarah, Marcus, Jeremiah, and Abigail near the car. Jen was still in the car because she was buckled in, but Marcus, Sarah, Jeremiah, and Abigail were outside of the car, um, presumably because they were thrown out of it because of the actual crash itself, and they weren't wearing seatbelts. It would be about two weeks before they found Sierra's body, and in May, they found a foot that they determined almost, it took almost a year for DNA, but it was later determined to be Hannah's. Devante's body was never found, but investigators state that they know without a doubt that he was in the car. However, they don't mention how they know this. So, it has led to some questions about how accurate this is. Several people and amateur crime lovers theorize that Jen or Sarah may have killed Devante several days before the crash and unable to live with the consequences that they were that were sure to come. Jen plotted out the deaths of the other kids, Sarah and herself. And honestly, it seems a bit wild, but considering his body has never been found and the narcissistic personality that Jen has, it doesn't seem completely unlikely. Um, especially when you add in to the whole thought process of him trying to steal food for the kids. Like, we obviously don't know what happened, but who's to say that, you know, they didn't find out that he was getting food for the kids, that they were planning to run away, or that he was just doing something as simple as feeding his siblings, and in a fit of rage, one of them flew off the handle and did something to him. And this is why she just randomly decided that she was going to kill them all. Yeah, like, that is that is the only possible explanation that I could even think of. I mean, nothing else really makes sense for me. Yes, I mean, like, they they chose this life. They chose to adopt these children. And why they even decided to do anything that they did to them baffles me. Oh, completely. Completely baffles me. Ultimately, driving off a cliff... It just it seems like, like it seems like a harsh reaction for the situation that they're yes. in. Because I mean, it sucks, but there are I mean, it's been I think I've seen it twice in recent times now where influencers have basically been shamed because they gave back a kid that they were that they adopted. So did she not want to live up to the shame and guilt of the fact that she that both of them adopted way too many kids than they could have handled and that they were overwhelmed. Like, yeah, that sucks, but you don't kill someone. No. You don't kill children. No. Over that. I I wish we knew more about Sarah and Jen's relationship because I want to know, because you say that Sarah was considered the nice one, like, and Jen was more narcissistic. 
Like, I want to know when her narcissistic behavior started with Sarah. Like, how, like, if she was talked into this, if she was, if Sarah was made to believe, like, this is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to treat your children. Yeah. And, like. I would be curious, too. I would be very curious to know more about that. Um, I will say, though, that when investigators got to the home of Sarah and Jen, they did find a drastically different version of the house that was presented on Facebook. The house that they went to was bare. There were no family pictures anywhere. Picture frames were empty. There were no toys. There were no signs that teenagers would even ever be living there. There were no plants. Um, There were no, there was nothing. There were like, it was bare bones of a house. And the investigator said that Sarah and Jen's room was fully decorated, had a bed, everything was fully decorated. However, the two rooms that the six children were living in, one room had two twin beds and the other room had a like floor mats, like just mats on the floor. So, that obviously means these children were sleeping in the worst possible conditions. They didn't even have beds to sleep in. But Sarah and Jen's room was full of Oh, they had. They had They had the best way. They were living lavish. Oh, yeah. children were sleeping on the floor. Exactly. And barely even able to eat a piece of pizza without being yelled at. I mean, I just... So... I will say in a podcast that I listen to, it's called Broken Hearts, and it goes over this their lives much in much greater detail than I can. And they have an interview with a friend of Jen. So Jen was a very heavy online gamer. And I asked Tyler about this. So she played this game, and they this guy that they interviewed said that Jen would play for hours, and she put in hours of work into this game. So, I asked Tyler, I said, so, like, in 2017-18, how common was it for if you were playing a computer game that you would be talking to your friends while you played, especially if you did a league and, or, like, had some kind of, you know, leadership role in this game, I guess. And he's like, oh, you, he's like, you would know a person pretty well, and I said, so would you, if someone was mistreating their kids, would you know? Because you heard them talking to their kids all day? And at first he said no. He's like, well, it just depends on if their kids were around. I said, but if you were a stay-at-home mom who homeschooled their kids and you spent hours a day gaming, would you know? And he said, well, he said it depends on how hard they tried to hide it. But to me, it just seems to reason how hard it would be to hide that. Like, I felt like people who were playing games with her had to know. Had to have heard it. Had to have heard, like, her tone or the way that she did things. Like, there's no way that for years no one knew what was going on. They had the neighbors who sat there and had a... the the little girl run in there in the middle of the night and they didn't report it like that that right there that gets me like why 
why? Why would you not report that? That like even if it is a child who could possibly just be saying this to get attention, it doesn't matter. You it's better safe yeah. than sorry. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think that's why it's so important that people remember that you are a what's the term? An obligated something like where you're obligated to report things when you when you hear something like as an adult as a human being if you see something wrong you're obligated to report abuse and i think that's important that people realize that hey you can do that like you can if they get pissed at you they get pissed at you but you're allowed to do that mm-hmm. please do that well that's pretty much where the story ends. In 2019, Devonte was ruled um, as dead, and um, on the death certificates of all the children, it is listed as homicide as the cause of death, and on both Sarah and Jen's death certificate, suicide is listed. So this is considered a murder-suicide, which doesn't make it feel any better kind of no. just makes it feel worse if i was to be honest it makes me feel like that sarah and jen are not only murderers but they're cowards oh 100 percent. and i do think that jen is painted as the bad guy and sarah's the one that kind of went along with it but like i said si- silence is compliance yeah she could have said something at any point in time so many people even if it was more. just to get the kids out of the situation yes. she could have said something yes. at any given point in time yes silence so, is compliance so many people could have done more but sarah definitely she was in the position to do the most she and she, she was the worst i mean i don't think it. anybody will ever know if it was an abuse situation on her part as well too or if maybe she just she was just as crazy as jen but i don't know it's it's a sad story. I don't like this one, I'll be honest. I love Stephanie for telling me about it, but it, it was hard to research because so much about this story is wrapped up in the idea that we're going to live our lives for social media, whatever, whatever the cost. Yes. And the cost in this situation was... The children's lives. So. And that's really. It's really sucky. But. That's all I got. Morgan. What do you think? You got any questions about this case that I can answer? I don't. I, I don't think I have any questions. I just. I. Like I'm baffled about the whole case. Like it. So many people starting with CPS. Just knock on the door. They knew she was there. And just left. Like, what is that? Mm-hmm. That is terrible. And, I mean, I understand when it comes to a school, all you can really do is is just report it. Keep reporting. Keep going. Anytime you see anything, just keep reporting. That's all you can do. But I just, I feel like so much more could have been done. So much. I don't know. I one of like one of the reasons why I'm going to be an educator is because there there is a boundary when it comes to educators. Like you have a boundary. You can't go over it. You can't get too emotionally invested into your students. But the you have to keep in mind, like I said earlier, this is some of these students' second home. Yep. So you need to make 
that environment the best possible environment for them because they may not be getting it at home. And if you see anything out of the ordinary, you've got to do something. Even if it's just like providing them food, um, talking to them, getting them to open up to you. Like it, it's just, you can save so many, so many lives, even if it's just saving them from their parents or saving them from themselves. Like children are so precious and like they, like they are very fragile and they need to be taken care of. Wow. That was good. I like that. Let's end on that note because I feel like you just closed us out with some great advice on what to do if you ever see a child of a child or children in this situation. If anyone has any questions about this case, please feel free to drop in the DMs unless you're a hater, in which case you already by messaging us you consent <laughs> to having your picture or your message posted all on the internet so and us making fun of you at work oh yes because that happens i make so much so much fun i love it anyway well i had a fun time morgan thank you for doing this with me thank you for letting me on it was so much fun i am so excited for bethany to come back because i love listening to you guys together y'all are a dynamic duo we try we try so if you're listening to this it's a sunday so next Sunday, you should hear an episode by Bethany, barring anything crazy from happening. Um, if anything does crazy happen, we'll let you know. But Bethany will be back. She will be presenting a case. So get ready. It's going to be fun. It'll be a party and the band's getting back together. <laughs> Y'all have a good night and thanks for listening. <laughs>